I'd invite you to turn in a Bible to Exodus chapter 15. Uh, this morning, we'd like to consider Exodus 15, starting in verse 26 and going through chapter 17, uh, verse 7. So that's a lot of ground to cover. We won't have time to read everything. And I think uh, I'll try to read uh, some of these passages for us as we go through, but I think you'll be helped uh, if you have a Bible open so you can kind of look and see uh, what it is that we're referring to. So uh, in our passage for this morning, we see the people of Israel uh, moving on from the Red Sea. They are beginning their journey towards Mount Sinai. If you remember, that's kind of, uh, we talked about last week, that's sort of Act 2 in the book of Exodus. There at Sinai, uh, they will meet with the Lord. Moses will receive God's law. If you remember where we've covered or what we've covered up to this point, uh, the Israelites have been delivered from slavery in Egypt. On their way out of Egypt, they were pursued by Pharaoh and his forces, and they wind up pinned against the Red Sea. Uh, what seems like sure death turns out to be the Lord's great deliverance. As he parts the water, he allows for his people to go through the sea on dry land and then returns the waters over Pharaoh and his army. Uh, last week, we considered the, the so-called Song of Moses, that great song of praise that the Israelites sang in response to the Lord's salvation uh, as he destroyed their enemies. And so now, as we come to chapter 15, verse 26, it's time for the people of Israel to go out. Uh, there in uh, chapter 15, uh, verse 22, starting, starting verse 22, rather, uh, we, we read that Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. So the, the language there in verse 22 is that the, the people of Israel were somewhat reluctant to go, that, that they would have been content to stay put for a while. And, and it makes sense why they would be reluctant to go. The wilderness that they were heading out into was a foreboding place. It was dry and arid, and oftentimes it was more than a full day's journey between sources of water. And so you could see why the Israelites might have wanted to just sort of hang by the Red Sea for a little while longer. Uh, as we go through this passage, we're going to see that while out in the wilderness, the Israelites encounter three crises. And we also see that in each case, the Lord miraculously provides all that his people need. And so that's going to be our outline for this morning, just two things. First, let's look at the three crises that uh, come upon the people of Israel, and then we will see three miraculous provisions. So first, let's look at the, at the crises. The first one's recorded for us again there in chapter 15. You see, starting in verse 22, we read this. Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? So the people set out into the wilderness, and immediately they run into a problem, and that is that they don't have any drinking water. And you can imagine just how upsetting and stressful that would be. Three days' journey without anything to drink in what would likely have been very significant heat. Right? They've gone from too much water at the Red Sea now to not having enough water. Uh, if they were traveling by foot, they were walking with all their belongings, their children. And so for three days, they've traveled. They probably exhausted the water they were able to bring with them. So they're thirsty, they're parched, they're bone dry, and they don't know what to do next. 
right? You can imagine what they felt when they finally get there in verse 23 to this place called Marah, and there they find a spring. There's an oasis. There's relief. There's joy. There's gratitude, right? The Lord has saved them again. And then you can imagine the bitter frustration and disappointment and even the anger when they find out that this water is bitter. Most likely that bitterness is some combination of dissolved salts and minerals in the water that would make it unpleasant and unsafe, but potentially poisonous. And so it must have seemed like the great victories they'd seen in Egypt were going to come to a pathetic and cruel end here in the desert. So that's the first crisis. They've run out of water. When they finally get to a spring, the water can't be consumed. So we'll consider in a bit what the Lord did to save them. But there in verse 27, we read this. It says, Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And they encamped there by the water. So there's there's a happy ending to the little adventure. The people are camping now by 12 springs of water, by 70 palm trees. But after a few weeks, we're told there in chapter 16 that they're back out into the desert again. So if you look in chapter 16, starting in verse 1, it says, They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Okay, so they set out again, having camped for a while at this beautiful spring. And and this time, the crisis that comes upon them is not a lack of water, but a lack of food. We really aren't told much about the problem. The text actually focuses in on the Israelites' response to it. And we'll get to that in a moment. But you can see the similarities between the two circumstances. First, they feel like they're going to die of thirst. Now in chapter 16, they feel like they're going to die of hunger. But there's one more crisis coming. We read there at the beginning of chapter 17. And again, stop me if you've heard this one. It says there in verse 1, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So the problem here in chapter 17 isn't that the water is bitter, it's that there's no water at all. We're not told why. Perhaps there was a drought. Scholars, some speculate that the Amalekites who, Lord willing, we'll meet next week at the end of chapter 17. We're actually preventing Israel from getting water. So in the ancient Near East, water rights were a very uh, sensitive subject. It's not unlikely that the Amalekites would have looked unkindly on hundreds of thousands of people coming to drink their water. But in any case, here in chapter 17, the people are in the same situation. There is no water for them to drink. So you've got three situations, three terrible crises. Now, in the previous chapter, at the Red Sea, Israel faced a a similar situation where where there seemed to be no possible solution to a life-threatening crisis, right? As the army of Pharaoh bore down on them, there was really zero chance of survival. But as we saw in chapter 14, the Lord intervened. The Lord miraculously provided a way, and they lived. Right In chapter 15, we saw they sang a song of praise to the Lord, commemorating his intervention on their behalf. Right? They sang to the Lord, just when all hope was lost, you saved us. And so how would you expect the people of Israel to respond to these three crises? 
Well, remember how they responded back in chapter 14 with audacious unbelief at the sight of Pharaoh's armies. We read back in chapter 14, starting in verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So that was chapter 14. But now, surely, after seeing the Lord's provision for them at the Red Sea, they're going to look to the Lord in these three crises, right? They're going to look to the Lord and trust him to provide all they need. Well, not so much. We read there in verse 24 of chapter 15 how the people react to the bitter water. The people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? There in chapter 16, we read about the way people respond to the lack of food in verses 2 and 3. It says, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we, have that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Right, the, the wording there emphasizes the fact that it was the entire nation, right? All the people of Israel were grumbling here, right? This incredible ingratitude. Right? They respond to this trial with unbelief. They, they, they have the audacity to say, we miss slavery. We miss the full pots of meat we had in Egypt, right? They completely forget how desperately they wanted out, how badly they were being mistreated, how wonderfully the Lord had delivered them. And then in chapter 17, we see their response to the, the, the third crisis, the lack of water. It says there in chapter 17, verse 2, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So in a word, they respond to difficulty by grumbling. And this grumbling is going to be a repeated theme for the people of Israel as they go through the wilderness. We see it here repeatedly in chapters 15 to 17. You see it again in the book of Numbers. If you look at Numbers 14 to 17, it happens again in the book of Joshua. Right? When faced with problems, the people grumble repeatedly. Right? In fact, it's, it's so bad that some scholars even think that maybe there's some mix-up in the text and that, that two stories kind of got reproduced next to each other because they say, look, there's no way people would grumble about water in chapter 15, have it miraculously provided for them, and then grumble about water again in chapter 17, right? Which just tells you they've never met a human being before, right? <laughs> because we're not talking about a bit of mild grumpiness, right? When we say they grumbled, Right? No, that word that's translated as grumbling ha has the sense of more than just letting off a little steam. It has, it has the, the sense, the meaning of, of fomenting rebellion. Right? It's an open opposition to the authority of Moses. 
Right? They basically accuse him of trying to commit murder there in chapter 16, verse 3. Right? This grumbling is a serious matter. And it's particularly grievous because while they might have thought they were complaining about Moses, Moses tells them that they're really complaining about the Lord himself. Right there in chapter 16, verse 8, uh, at the end of that verse, Moses and Aaron say to the people, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Right? You're lashing out at Moses, but you're really lashing out at the Lord. You're saying that his care, his provision, his love is insufficient. Right? They've suddenly become nostalgic for the good old days of Egypt. Right? They were despising the salvation the Lord had provided for them. And so instead of crying out to God in their time of trial, instead of calling on him to help, instead of saying, Lord, you saved us at the Red Sea. You delivered us when we had no hope. So do something now to help us. Right? Instead of crying out in faith to him, they lash out. So the Israelites face three crises, and they respond each time with grumbling. And friends, we ought to learn from their example. Remember the Apostle Paul told the church at Corinth that these stories of the Israelites wandering around in the desert were written down for our benefit so that we would learn not to do the things that they did. And so this passage serves as a clear warning to us as God's people that we ought not to respond to troubles, to crises in our lives by grumbling and doubting and acting in a faithless way. Right? That's a lesson that the Israelites have to learn time and time again, and so do we. Because so often when we find ourselves in times of difficulty, we're tempted to complain and to grumble against what the Lord has ordained for us. If you think about it, almost everything in our culture tells us that we ought to be dissatisfied with what we have. Right? Every advertisement, it seems, whether it's in a, a newspaper, a magazine, online, in a movie, in a, in a television show, almost every advertisement plays on and feeds our sense of dissatisfaction. We're being carefully discipled by the world not to be content with our jobs, with our appearance, with our house, with our car, with our clothes, with our bank account, with our friends, with our spouse, with our kids. I think about it. We live in one of the richest counties, in one of the richest countries in the history of mankind. And we still don't feel like we have enough. We still have the nerve to be dissatisfied. And while we might complain about some dumb, vain, foolish things, I think we're probably even more tempted to grumble about serious things when we do uh, encounter genuinely difficult trials. When things become hard, when it feels like we're in trouble, it can seem like the reality and the stress of the world is more real and more tangible than God's promises. And that lack of trust in our hearts becomes revealed in our words, just like it was for the Israelites. We speak words of grumbling and complaint. We, we subtly ca cast doubt on God's love. Even if we manage to keep our mouths shut, we might become bitter, resentful, and angry. But church, it shouldn't be so. Because when we look at the scriptures, when we look at what God says, and when we look at what he does for his people, we see that God always has a good and kind plan for them. 
even if that plan involves walking through difficult circumstances. Right? Even in the wilderness, as the Israelites were thirsty and hungry, the Lord had a very good plan for them. Stop and think about it for a second. You realize, of course, that God could have easily kept them from experiencing any discomfort. He could have given them everything they wanted so that they never had to actually trust him. God never intended to let his people die of thirst and hunger. But what we see in this passage is that he does seem to prioritize their growth in faith over their personal comfort. God seems to intentionally put them in times of difficulty so that they would learn an extremely important lesson, a lesson that they were going to need if they were ever going to live in the land that the Lord was taking them to. And that lesson is this, that they should trust the Lord in every circumstance. Right? That's why, as we'll see in a little bit, when the Lord provides food for them in chapter 16, he provides food that only lasts for one day. God would provide what they need, but he would also provide a daily reminder of their dependence on him. The Israelites were in the wilderness to learn that even in a place with no food and no water, they could trust the Lord. So later on in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses summarized the point of all this. He said in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, speaking of the Lord, He humbled you and let your hunger and, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Listen that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The Lord wanted to teach his people to respond in humble faith. That's why he let them go through these difficulties. And brothers and sisters, so it is for us. We need to be reminded that grumbling and complaining about our lives, about our circumstances, is really complaining about God. Right? The next time you feel like complaining, right? the next time discontent swells up in your heart, stop and ask yourself if you've ever experienced the Lord's kindness. Stop and ask yourself if he's ever surprised you with a solution to a problem that you couldn't have imagined. Stop and ask yourself if God has ever turned a difficulty in your life into a blessing. Run your discontent through the filter of God's kindness to you in the past. And learn, like the Israelites had to learn, to trust in the Lord. Okay, so with all that said, let's look now and see the, the Lord's provision in light of these three crises. It's amazing. The Lord does not respond to the complaining accusing ingratitude of his people with, with wrath. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't come with a good old-fashioned smiting. But instead he shows them grace and kindness. Right? It's, it's no surprise to us, if you've been reading the Bible up to this point, that the Lord is able to make bitter water sweet. It's no surprise that the Lord can make miraculous food. Right? If you've been paying attention in the book of Exodus, you've got the point that God has all the power. He can do anything. What's surprising here is not that the Lord is able to help. What's surprising is that he's willing to help these people, these grumbling, complaining, ungrateful people. 
But look what happens there at Marah, where the water is bitter. There in chapter 15, the beginning of verse 25, we read that the, Moses took the matter to the Lord. It says, he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. The Lord shows Moses a log. He throws it in the water, at which point the water becomes sweet and potable. You might notice there a bit of an echo of the first plague that we saw in Egypt. Remember there, Moses hits the water of the Nile with his staff, and it becomes undrinkable. Now Moses hits the, the water with a log, and the foul water becomes fresh. Right, and that fits the pattern that we've seen through the Exodus narrative, that the Lord turns blessings into curses for the enemies of his people, and he turns curses into blessings on the, to benefit his people. That crisis ends with the Lord bringing his people to Elam, as we saw there at the end of chapter 15. There in verse 27, we read that there were 12 springs, there were 70 palm trees. Right? Those numbers are both used throughout the scriptures to indicate completeness. Right? The sense is that the Lord has brought them to an oasis, a place where they experience complete and total relief. Right? You can imagine how wonderful it was for the nation to, to camp there at the springs, enjoying the blessings of waters and tree. And next, in chapter 16, we see the Lord provide miraculous food for his people in the wilderness. He responds to their grumbling there in chapter 16, in verses 4 to 6. It says, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day... When they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then skipping down to verse 9, we read this. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel... They looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. So the Lord responds to their faithless grumbling by giving them quail in the evening. And every morning, a fine, flaky bread that we read tasted like wafers made with honey, according to verse 31. We read there in verse 31, they called it manna, which means, what is it? The instructions the Lord gives them were that they only ought to take enough for each day. Uh, if they took more, it would, it would stink and grow worms overnight. You see that in verse 20. There was only one exception to that rule. On the day before the Sabbath, they were to collect enough for two days. You see that in verses 22 to 26 of chapter 16. In that case, the manna wouldn't spoil. And so just notice quickly four things about this provision of miraculous food that really takes up all of chapter 16. 
First, you can't help but notice that the Lord sustains his people with things that are good. It would have been sufficient for the Lord to simply give his people the, the nutrients they need. But instead, what we see is that he provides them with quail, which was considered a rare delicacy in Egypt. Right? It would be like, like prime rib like being sh- showered down on a congregation. Right? He gives them manna. And the text tells us that it wasn't some sort of flavorless gruel, but it was, it was sweet like honey. Right? The Lord, what we see here, he doesn't just sustain his people, but he blesses them with things that will bring them joy. He's providing a steak dinner in the wilderness every day and every night. Right? The blessing is sweet to his people. I think we have it wrong when we think that God is reluctant to give us good things. When we think that God is somehow miserly or stingy with his kindness. Right? It might not always take the form that we would expect, but the Lord gives good gifts to his children. The second thing we see here is that the the Lord's provision contains a test, right? As I mentioned a moment ago, the Lord gives the manna in such a way as to test the hearts of his people, right? There in verse 4, he says to Moses, the test is to see whether the people will walk in my law, in verse 4, or not. So the Lord only provides enough manna for each day. He knows That if we get two or three days, if we get a week's supply, we'll simply forget about him. We'll start taking it for granted. We'll start thinking that we're the ones who have provided for ourselves. And so the people of Israel are purposefully only supposed to collect enough for each day. The Lord says, you can trust me. There'll be plenty more in the morning. There in verse 20 of chapter 16, we read that some don't listen. They wind up with a pot full of uh, stink and maggots for their trouble. Right? And the point of all this testing was not to cause the people to sin. It was to reveal what was in their hearts. It was to show them how foolishly unwilling they were to be dependent on the Lord. The third thing to notice here is, is how the Lord wants his people to rest. As we saw, the Lord insists that his people would collect two days worth of manna before the Sabbath, before the seventh day. The idea is that he would cause that food to last for two days so they would not have to go out on the Sabbath and collect more food. The Lord says he wants them to stay in their tents and rest. Now, Lord willing, we'll have more time when we come to the the chapter 20 and the fourth commandment there. We'll have more time to think about the Sabbath. But let me just point out here from chapter 16 how amazing it is that the Lord insists that his people rest He gives them the Sabbath, a day of rest. That's the centerpiece, in many ways, of the the Israelite religion. Pharaoh wants Israel to slave away and work for him. But now they're under a new master. And what does he want for them? He wants them to rest. The Sabbath rest, of course, points back to creation, where the Lord himself rested. And it points forward to the rest that remains for his people in the future. So they said, well, Lord willing, have more time to think about that in the future. But just notice how kind the Lord is to Israel. He wants them to rest. The fourth thing to notice is that this provision points us forward, of course, to the Lord Jesus. The one who, as we read earlier, uh, taught us that man does not live by bread alone. In John chapter 6, Jesus makes it explicit. 
we see that a thousand years later, after Jesus came, after a thousand years after these, more than a thousand years after these events in chapter 16, the Lord Jesus himself shows his deity by providing miraculous food. He fed more than 5,000 hungry people. And he points back to what we see in chapter 16. He points back to the manna in the wilderness, and he tries to use that example to help people understand who he is and and what he came to do. So we read there in John chapter 6, starting in verse 28. It says, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who came down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then a few verses later in John chapter 6, verse 47, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give For the life of the world is my flesh. And Jesus tells us there that he is the living bread that came down from heaven. Manna was a wonderful gift from God. It was exactly what his people needed. It was a miracle. It wound up keeping the people of Israel alive in the wilderness for 40 years. But it's nothing compared to Jesus. Because man can't live by bread or by manna alone. Our foundational needs go much deeper than the need for food. Jesus is everything we need. He is our spiritual food, our bread, our life. Just as God saw his people in need in the desert and sent them manna, so God saw his people in great spiritual need. He saw us far away from him, alienated, enslaved to sin, without any guide or direction, hopelessly lost the way, as we sang earlier in our service. And God, seeing our need, sent the Lord Jesus to be bread from heaven for us, to die, to give his flesh for our sins. And so the question is how we respond to him. There in verse 41, we read how the people reacted to Jesus. In John chapter 6, verse 41, we read this, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Does that sound familiar? They rejected the salvation. They rejected the the spiritual life-giving bread that God had sent to them. It simply wasn't what they were looking for. But friends, we don't have to make the same mistake. We can feast on this bread. We can feast on Jesus by faith. We can trust him for salvation. We can make him our spiritual food. Right? The manna eventually stopped. If you ate that miraculous bread, you eventually became hungry. You needed more. Right? Those who ate the manna, Jesus points out, eventually die in the wilderness. But he says, if you'll come to him for spiritual sustenance, 
He says, you'll never die. He will give you eternal life. You will live forever with God, even though your body should die. So friend, if you've not put your trust in Jesus, he invites you to come to him today. He died on the cross and he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death so that anyone who would come to him in faith will have eternal life. You can come this morning and fill up your soul on him like those hungry Israelites sort of gorged on the sweet bread and quail in the wilderness. We'd urge you, if you've not put your trust in Jesus, to do so today. Don't let anything stop you. But if you do have questions, I'd encourage you to talk to the person who invited you this morning. You can come talk to me after, after our service. You can talk to anyone that you've seen up here. We'd be delighted to tell you more about how to have eternal life by feasting on the bread from heaven. There is one more provision for us to consider this morning. We've seen that Moses made the the bitter water sweet by throwing in a log. We saw that the Lord responded to the crisis of lack of food with manna and quail. There is one more provision there in chapter 17. You remember there the people have camped at Rephidim and they have no water. So they freak out at Moses. There in verse 4, it seems like Moses freaks out a little bit. He says there in verse 4, So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. Listen to how the Lord responds. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So Moses takes his problem to the Lord. He cries out to God for help, and the Lord gives him some very specific instructions. He says, walk on ahead of the people. Take some of the elders of the people with you. He says, take your staff. And he's very specific, the staff with which you struck the Nile. And then when you come to Horeb, you'll find a rock there. There in verse 6, the Lord tells Moses to strike the rock, and out of it comes water for the people. Now that, that might seem like just a run-of-the-mill miracle to you. Thirsty people, bad situation, miraculous provision. God is great, right? We've seen that before in the book of Exodus. On the first glance, you might even wonder why this story is necessary. We know the Lord can provide water for his people. But but when you look closely, there is so much going on here in chapter 7. When you look closely, this is really the story of a trial. There in Exodus chapter 17, verse 2, we're told that the Israelites quarrel with Moses. The Hebrew word that's translated quarrel there, it has a legal sense to it. What they're really doing is accusing Moses. They're bringing him up on charges. Uh, the crime that they allege that he's committed, there in verse 3, it's, it's nothing less than murder. Right? He says, you, they ask him, did you bring us out here to kill us? There in verse 4, we see that the verdict was guilty. Right? Moses points out that they are ready to stone him. 
right? The accusation's been made, Moses has been found guilty, and they're ready to do the execution. But there in verse 2, Moses reminds them it's actually God that they've put on trial. Why do you test the Lord? Why have you put the Lord on trial? You see the nature of their charges against God there in verse 7. The question that they're asking is, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord really faithful? Has he kept his promises? Is the Lord in breach of contract? What we see here in chapter 17 is that the people of Israel have put the Lord on trial. He says that he is full of covenant love, full of that word we saw last week, hesed, the the steadfast love of the Lord. But here in chapter 17, the people of Israel have their doubts. And so they accuse God. They, They ask, is he really among us? And so how does the Lord respond? Almost unimaginably, he goes along with it. He doesn't just rebuke everyone and wipe them out, but he goes forward. He tells Moses to go out a bit from the camp. He tells Moses to bring some of the elders from the people. It seems like they're there to serve as witnesses and as a jury, right? Let's see if the Lord is among us or not, right? The elders are there to see what happens, to testify to what the Lord does. They're there as a representative of the people to see if the Lord is among them, to see if the Lord is faithful or to see whether he's guilty, Now, friends, the irony here is that it's not the Lord who's on trial. The Israelites have no business examining the Lord to determine whether he's innocent or guilty in their eyes. What's what's clear is that it's actually the Israelites who are on trial. You remember the Lord has already declared that this trip into the wilderness is a test for the Israelites to see what's in their hearts. So we see that back in chapter 15, verse 25. We see it in, in chapter 16, verse 4. The Lord is clear. This is a test to see what the people of Israel have in their hearts. And they've already failed. In chapter 15 and chapter 16, they're guilty of grumbling, bitterness, faithlessness. And yet here in chapter 17, they have the nerve to put the Lord on trial. As if they were holy. As if they were righteous. As if it's the Lord's character that's really in doubt. Now, of course, it's fair to point out that we do the same thing, right? Every time we complain, every time we grumble, every time we, we cultivate discontent in our heart, we are weighing God's actions and his provision and, and finding them wanting. But friends, that's, that's so ridiculous. Can you see that it should never be so? C.S. Lewis famously wrote in his book, God in the Dock, the dock in the British system is where the accused stands during a trial. And C.S. Lewis wrote this. He says, for modern man, he is the judge. God is in the dock. He is a quite kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench where the judge would sit and God in the dock. Can you see that that's exactly what the people of Israel have done? They demand here that God give an account for his actions, and God, in his great forbearance, goes along with it. 
He's not going to leave it unaddressed, but he goes along with it for the time being. And so Moses goes out and he strikes the rock with the staff. Again, specifically, the staff with which he struck the Nile. That's important because that staff has functioned in the book of Exodus as a sign of judgment. It's a symbol of judgment. When it struck the Nile, judgment began on the people of Egypt. And so here, Moses takes the staff of judgment and he strikes a blow on this rock. The rock, if you will, takes the punishment, right? Only after the judgment has fallen, only after the punishment has been meted out, does water come forth. Right? We know that there was a test, there was a trial, and the people of Israel failed. They grumbled, they rebelled, they presumed to put God on trial. And so this rock, which receives the blow of just judgment, the rock must represent the people of Israel, right? It's a symbolic representation of them in their guilt, so that when, the, when Moses strikes it, it's, it's as if the, the people of Israel are themselves being punished. Well, that's what it seems to be, but it turns out it's not. Because the Lord tells us there in verse 6, he says this, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. God says that he will stand on the rock as it receives the blow. If you will, the, the, the stroke of justice is landing on God himself. It's as if God is taking the punishment that his people deserve. And so, friends, Jesus just showed up in your Old Testament. Here in the wilderness, the Lord is showing Israel what his salvation looks like. It looks like them sinning and him taking the punishment that they deserve. It's, it's God taking on himself the consequences of their sin and life-giving water pouring forth to the salvation of his people. Friends, that's what Jesus did on the cross. The Son of God died on the cross, taking the blow of justice, the punishment that we deserve for our sins so that we can have all that we need for eternal life. And we're not stretching it here. The Apostle Paul actually tells us that we're correct to read these events through the lens of Jesus. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Starting in verse 1, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, that is the cloud of God's presence that we've seen in Exodus, and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Okay, so that's what we saw at the Red Sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, manna, and all drank the same spiritual drink, the water. He says, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Friends, that rock in the wilderness was Christ. The question that the Israelites posed was, is the Lord with us or not? And the answer was, I'm going to give you my son. And he'll be stricken with the rod of justice so that you can drink your fill of life-giving water. Christian, we don't believe the prosperity gospel. We don't believe that being a follower of Christ means that you get health and wealth and an easy life. 
Right? Jesus said that's nonsense. But the gospel we do trust in is even better. Because the gospel that we've received in God's word tells us that God is with us. And that he loves us. And that he will provide all that we need. So when you're tempted to grumble and complain, when you wonder if God is really worthy of your trust, or whether you'd be better off back in Egypt in the land you, in the land you came out of, when you look at the circumstances of your life, and disappointments and struggles and pain that seem to be greater than the blessings of the Lord, when the only logical conclusion is that God must have led you out here to die, when you wonder whether God is with you or not, he would point you to his son, struck for you on the cross. Christian, you can know that the Lord is with you and that he's worthy of your trust and that he will provide what you need and that he will bring you safely home to the land of rest because he's given you his son. So friends, that brings us to our celebration of the Lord's Supper. It seems like the best way to celebrate the truth that we see here in our passage is to come to the Lord's table and, and experience what the Israelites experienced in the desert. To come and drink deeply from living water that pours forth from the cross. Here at the table we come and we rejoice in and we commune with our crucified and risen Savior, the Lord Jesus, the rock who was struck so that we might have all that we need. So let's pray together, and then let's come to the table. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we delight in your kindness to us. You are so patient with your people, so loving, so generous in your provision. Father, forgive us for the ways we grumble. Forgive us for the ways we wonder if you really can be trusted. You have proved your faithfulness to us over and over again. And so we delight in the cross of the Lord Jesus, the rock that was struck for us so that we might experience life-giving water. Holy Spirit, would you help us to feast on Christ by faith as we come now to the table? Would you help us not to grumble, but to trust in the goodness of our Heavenly Father at all times? We do pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.